You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, the red list from the Heart and Stroke Foundation and how the symptoms for a heart event are very different for women. Also on the show, Jim Lang with the Jays at Spring Training. But we begin with a campaign to check for concussions. This is their latest public service announcement. What happened? She fell off the jungle gym. She was tackled. You just hit a rock. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? If you have to ask, you have to check. 50% of concussions go unreported. Learn what to do at parachute.ca. Well, that was uh, one of the PSAs that uh, Parachute, uh, whose mandate is to prevent injuries and save lives, has put forward on television, both English and French language. Joining us on the feed right now, Kelly Tian. She is a member of Parachute and vice president communications and marketing, but also somebody who's very committed to getting the word out. What is the message, Kelly? The message is for anyone who has suffered a blow to the body, not necessarily just a hit to the head, but any kind of blow, if they show any of the signs and symptoms of a concussion, you need to check it out. So in the video we ask, are you okay? And if you need to ask that question when somebody struck the blow, you really should check about signs for concussion. You know, it's interesting. Most people are under the impression that it is a blow to the head. So explain to me how a concussion can develop as a result of a blow to the body. Think of your brain as uh, make a little fist with your one hand and then cup your other hand out a few inches from it. That cupped hand is your skull. It stops, but your brain doesn't. So if somebody body checks you or you are jolted, like for instance in a car collision, your body, uh, your brain keeps moving because it is floating within your skull, but your skull has suddenly stopped. So it is what we call the second collision. The brain hits the inside of the skull. That's what causes the concussion. What are the signs? The signs can be physical. They can be how you think, cognitive. There are even emotional signs and some sleep-related signs. So on our website, parashot.ca, we give a whole listing of them. But some of the common ones, the physical ones, are blurred vision or headache. People think cognitively they may not feel like they're thinking right or they're in a fog. Uh, Also emotional, they might get very uh, nervous or anxious and have difficulty with sleeping. So those are some of the signs and symptoms. There are many more. Uh, Sensitivity to light and sound is also a big one for some people. And these may develop immediately after the blow. They can also develop a little time later. I have a friend who uh, is uh, the head of a charitable organization that uh, takes care of wild animals. Uh, She has a lot on her plate. She fell in October and ended up in hospital in January complaining of daily headaches. They had to drain the blood from uh, her brain. I guess they had to drill a hole through her skull. She's going to be okay, but it took a while for the symptoms to become unbearable, and then she took action. With concussion, certainly, and with any brain injury, 
it isn't something you can immediately feel like a broken limb. You see that, you feel it immediately, you know there's something wrong. With brain injuries, it's a much more delicate healing process. So that's why if you are in doubt, check it out. That's one of the, the phrases that we sometimes use. Essentially, if there's been a blow to the body where there's a possibility of a concussion, seek medical advice right away. Check it out. If there's nothing wrong, that's great. But if there is, we can go through the symptoms and see how you're feeling. Then there is a very well-established, essentially, road to recovery from concussion because what your brain needs to do, it's been injured. So it needs to rest, but it also needs to incrementally start resuming the activities it normally does. Those are physical activities it allows you to do, your thinking activities, your emotional activities. All of those things come back in gradual stages and typically most concussions can be healed within two to four weeks. Who's vulnerable? We understand Scott Moyer and Steve Podborski, two Olympians, very different sports, but each uh, understands the perils of their sport. Uh, you've chosen them to uh, lead the English-speaking public service announcement. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole other slice of society out there, young people, people young at heart, just people going through their daily lives. Are they vulnerable? I think as we move in our spaces, we can hit our heads that have a blow so easily. It can happen, uh, I know, anecdotally and personally. I have people in my circle of friends. One person, two uh, teenage girls were having a pillow fight, and one of them got a concussion So because they bumped heads. These things can happen, obviously, in uh, athletic sport. One of the big added factors in competitive sport is that the person feels this pressure to soldier on that they're on the field, they're playing the game, hey, you've been hit, are you okay? No, no, I'm fine. They'll try to shake it off because they want to go back in and compete. And one of the worst things you can do if you have a concussion is essentially to get a second one because the brain is injured and then it is susceptible to greater injury through a second uh, blow. So one of the reasons we've been focusing strongly on sports is because we are dealing with that added factor where somebody wants to shake off how they feel and get back in the game. In our campaign and in the concussion work we do at Parachute, we're always emphasizing that it's not the responsibility of the athlete or the person who's been injured. It's the people around them. Because if you've had, they sometimes called it, your clock dinged or, you know, you're feeling off, you're not in a position to make wise decisions about your own medical care and, and your own assessment of whether you've had a concussion. The people around you need to take care of you. That means your care parents, your coach, your fellow athletes in day-to-day life. If you're with your child who's had some sort of blow to the head, it's up to the parent to pay special attention. The child, the athlete, the person who's been hit, they're not necessarily going to be able to determine for themselves that they've had an injury and they need to back off and seek medical care. And when you say seek medical care, do you mean your family doctor or should you uh, go to eMERGE? What would be the first next best step? The best step is to consult a medical doctor. Uh, however, that you can access that in your network of care. Uh, there are some nurse practitioners in some jurisdictions who are also qualified for this kind of assessment, but uh, we do recommend and the protocols that are set guidelines for all of Canada in in various sports, uh, recommend that it is a medical doctor who does the assessment. And a lot of sports, uh, and even if you're just out cycling, you're encouraged to wear a helmet. Does that make a difference? 
Helmets prevent all kinds of injuries and protect the brain in many wonderful ways. However, concussion is not one of the things that helmets uh, have a, a big impact on because remember, it is that internal blow. The body stops, the head moves into the skull, and that is something that, uh, you know, there's no helmet cushion between the brain and the inside of your skull. So the bottom line here is prevention. How do you prevent this from happening? We have all kinds of protocols that we provide and guidance to, for instance, in sports teams. There are certain practices and certain movements within sports that are prone to causing concussions. So it is specific sport to sport, so we encourage people to be familiar with those. Uh, we do have another program here at Parachute called Smart Hockey that does uh, all kinds of support information for hockey teams to go through that with their players. We're looking at ways of preventing the kind of body contact unnecessarily that could cause a concussion. Concussions, that being said, sometimes they will happen, just like occasionally someone may break a bone, but these are do not need to be serious or ongoing injuries. They are injuries that can heal. So we're encouraging people to, yes, of course, follow the rules of fair play, uh, follow what is known to be the best practices within your sport to prevent these kind of contacts. And then if it, something does happen, sit out, rest, see your doctor, and then follow the step-by-step stages to get yourself back in the game. You make so much sense. But I'm thinking about the influences that are around us, uh, films and television shows and, you know, football games and uh, movies that are... are are full of violence and and a lot of uh, banging and fighting and kicking and and head hitting. So how how do you get your message through all of that, where people are influenced by what they see on the screen? Well, we're hoping that at least the Scott Moyer fans were uh, interested in listening to what we had to say. It was one of the reasons we took an approach of using athletes and working with uh, champions who are people who will break through that clutter a little bit. I mean, uh, another pamphlet from a safety organization that that when you're seeking out that information, that's terrific. But to get people to seek out the proper advice, we also work through uh, networks. So whether it's through medical professionals or through coaching associations and through sports associations, we work with them to set the ground rules. Because what we want to do is get people to understand that, look, you're signing up for the sport, you're also going to be familiar with our percussion, you know, percussion protocol, and if you have a concussion or we suspect you are, we're going to pull you from play. And that, those are the rules. And that way, there's no pressure because you don't have the parent saying, oh, get my kid back into the game, or the coach saying to the player, oh, come on, you can go do it. Everybody agrees to the rules. The rules are, if you got a blow, we're going to check it out. We're going to check for concussion if you've had this because that's going to keep you in the game longer you're going to be able to play again sooner if you heal and get back at it rather than take the risk of pushing through and injuring yourself in a severe way. You mentioned for the most part that you can heal from a concussion. I remember as a young sports anchor years ago, uh, I interviewed a, a boxer and he had his bell rung big time and plenty of times. And this was a long time ago before the discussion of concussion became uh, important. He's never been the same. He has never been the same, but he survived. But his brain is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. We do certainly know of these cases of people who have had repeated brain injury, and it is 
a troubling phenomenon. And so what we're trying to do is from the start with young people and with young athletes to make sure that they do not get that kind of accumulated injury, that they take the time to heal when there is that first concussion, and that will help them lead a long and healthy life, which is what we're all about at Parachute. You're all about check for concussion as well. If people want more information uh, or take a look at the signs, the symptoms, treatment prevention, where should they go, Kelly? They should go to parachute.ca. And if they're interested, going directly to our concussion pages, parachute.ca slash concussion. Well done. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Anne. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. With the changes in the temperature at this time of the year, the OPP are saying to exercise caution near any body of water and that no ice is safe ice. Afuaba with a few reminders from police. Well, with the seesaw weather, it's making dangerous and in sadly some situations, deadly conditions on ponds and lakes in Ontario. So joining me today to talk about ice safety tips on the lakes is none other than OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt. Sergeant Schmidt, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. Okay, so of course, uh, we've been seeing a lot of uh, lake-related stories in terms of people falling through the ice. If you can just sort of give us a quick synopsis as to basically why. Well, you know what? We have had a really abnormal winter. We have not had that deep freeze that makes that solid ice uh, like we have seen in the past. And that is a huge concern. Here we are in the middle of February, and by this time, very often, we have lots of lake ice with lots of thickness, and there's uh, even heavy equipment driving on some of these uh, these lakes and, and ice roads. But uh, this year, you know, we've seen uh, a much different situation, uh, even out on Lake Simcoe. We still have the ferry running between Georgina and Georgina Island uh, because the thickness of the ice is so thin, and obviously because the ferry is still running, we still have wide open water where the ferry travels back and forth. So uh, there may be uh, areas where there's going to be uh, ice huts and uh, fishing shacks and, and snowmobilers out on the ice. But um, any big machine or uh, if you stop in an area where there's moving water, you're going to have very thin ice and very dangerous conditions. Okay, so with that in mind then, of course, since the ice is still not stable despite appearances, what are some safety tips that you can give us, um, some safety tips that you can give residents that we just need to be reminded of? Well, absolutely. Of course, our first message is always no ice is ever considered safe ice. You never know what uh, could be happening underneath and how thick this ice is. Even if you're well familiar with the lake itself, we can certainly be dealing with uh, very dangerous precarious positions. If you're on a river or anywhere where there's moving water, the potential for uh, ice to uh, break up is going to be far more uh, high, and that's going to obviously result in uh, the potential for someone to fall through. We've had some recent tragedies already just this past weekend where uh, kids were playing out on a uh, frozen body of water and uh, went through the ice, and sadly, one of them never resurfaced. Yeah, if you're on a snow machine or anything else, you need to have safety equipment. And even as a snowbiller, you can get uh, life-saving and inflatable life jackets that you can wear under your uh, snowmobile suits so that you can actually uh, float and stay above water if, you, if in every event you actually go through the ice. Okay, and I know you just touched on the tragic story of the nine-year-old who uh, died, of course, trying to save his friend on Lake Erie over the weekend. What does one do if they see someone in distress out on the lake? Well, again, uh, don't put yourself in jeopardy. If you see where their tracks are going in, you know, you know that's where the compromised ice is. Uh, stay clear, far away, call 911 immediately. If you have any uh, 
uh, throw lines or rescue lines or anything that floats. Uh, you can drag it out with it, with your, if, with yourself if you're heading out. I know even our dive teams, when they're going out in icy conditions on an area they're not familiar with, they will actually drag a boat with them, a little uh, aluminum boat that if, if in case they fall through the ice or break through the ice, they can jump into this vessel and that'll keep them above water. Okay. And then what if you yourself are on the lake and are in distress? What do you do then? Well, again, if you're in the water and you go through, uh, first of all, you've got to remain calm. Don't panic. Uh, again, you have uh, a very limited uh, energy and time to catch, catch your breath, to get your breathing under control. Uh, it's kind of like the one ten one rule. I've heard when you go into cold water, you have about a minute to get your breathing under control, calm yourself down, and uh, figure out what uh, your next steps are going to be. You have about 10 minutes of effective movement where you can uh, use your strength, use your legs and arms to kick your way out to, uh, back onto uh, land or onto uh, ice above. And, uh, again, uh, failing that, you have about an hour of time before uh, you succumb to uh, um, loss of consciousness because of hypothermia. So, you know, we just need you to be prepared. If you're going to be on any frozen bodies of water, make sure you have enough life-saving equipment. If you're on a snow machine or any uh, vehicle out there, having uh, rescue spikes will help you be able to crawl and claw your way out of uh, the water up onto ice. Stay low and spread your weight across the ice as you're uh, rolling out of the water onto the ice. And then once you get on the firm foundation, obviously get to dry, solid land. These sort of same rules apply to if you see maybe any type of pet that sort of ventures off onto the ice and you're thinking, oh my goodness, my pet is out there. Should I sort of corral it to try and come back to me? Should I go and call for help instead? Well, you do a call for help because you think about if your pet goes through the ice and a dog or animal, 20, 30, 40, maybe 100 pounds, uh, if it goes through the ice, we know that ice is very thin and uh, you will likely break through the ice yourself. So, you know, maybe you can throw a rescue rope, you can throw something that it can maybe crawl onto, but uh, don't risk your own life trying to get there because you will likely be the one that's going to end up uh, in the same condition that they are. Call 911 and, and get the, the appropriate help that can come out there and rescue uh, your pet as quickly as possible. All right, okay. And, of course, uh, prevention is always uh, the best cure, they always say. So, of course, the best number one thing to do is just to stay away from these bodies of water because we're just not sure and just wait it out until warmer weather and then we can sort of safely head out onto the lake. Absolutely. No ice is ever considered safe. Always be careful. Always travel with a friend or make sure someone knows where you're going and what you're doing and, and always have a plan in case something goes uh, sideways on you. Perfect. All right. OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt joining us for today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. As we enter the last week of Heart Health Month, we turn our attention to women and heart disease. Tina Cortez with The Red List. Teresa Roncon is Senior Communications Manager for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Teresa, welcome to The Feed. Thank you very much, Tina. Thanks for having me today. Teresa, as we wrap up Heart Month, can you tell us a little bit about The Red List and what it's all about? Sure. The uh, the Red List is a part of our women's campaign, uh, a campaign that we've had ongoing for uh, over two years, and it's a collective of people. It's um, 
somewhat symbolic, but not only. It's both men and women who can sign on to the red list to pledge their support of Heart and Stroke's women's campaign. Uh, and once they are part of the red list, they can donate or they can sign up to receive our newsletters to learn more about heart disease and stroke, as well as how to best advocate for yourself. And why do you think this is so important? Oh, while there is a growing awareness of uh, heart disease uh, and women, um, heart disease is heart disease and stroke together are the number one cause of premature death for women in this country. Uh, what people don't understand thoroughly is that uh, women are not small men. Biologically, of course, we are not, but it's not just the obvious differences. Women's hearts are actually smaller. We have smaller coronary arteries. The plaque builds up in our blood vessels differently. And yet, two-thirds of clinical heart disease and stroke research is based on men. So there's a sex and gender research gap. And when we don't know enough about why women get sick, how to diagnose women, how to treat them, then it's costing women's lives. So, Teresa, are people getting the message, men and women alike, about heart disease? It's definitely growing. Um, uh, traditionally, uh, heart disease has been thought of as an older white man's disease, and that's just not the case. Uh, women um, and men both um, are, are suffer from heart disease and stroke. Um, and you know, there's even such a thing as called, uh, that's called a Hollywood heart attack. Um, and this is always something that we see on TV, perhaps, or movies where men are clutching at their chest, but it also happens to women. Um, and while there's a slightly less number of women that um, die from heart uh, attacks than men, um, heart attacks are actually more deadly for women, and women are more likely to suffer a second heart attack than men. Those are frightening and shocking statistics and you know you mentioned the Hollywood heart attack and it reminded me of a documentary I watched recently about Rosie O'Donnell who suffered a heart attack and she said to keep this acronym in mind HEPA is the way she said it and it was about the symptoms for women are different in a heart attack than for men she said we feel heat we're exhausted um, there is a pain there's a paleness that comes over us and often we puke or we vomit do you think that message about the symptoms being different for women is getting out there? That is definitely part of our campaign is to highlight uh, the fact that women may experience heart attack symptoms differently than men. Uh, chest pain is still the most common symptom for both men and women, but women tend to also have other uh, symptoms associated with it. And if you, anyone that's listening to this show, you should go to heartandstroke.ca, click on women, and the symptoms for women are right there. Um, and again, it's not necessarily only that the symptoms are differently, that we experience them differently. Women are also very busy. Men, of course, are busy, and this is not to undermine uh, a men's um, busy role in society, but we tend to put some other people in our lives first, like our children. Oftentimes, women are caregivers of older people, well, their parents, and so we can say, you know, I'm not feeling well, but I, I, I'm too busy today to go to the doctor. So you should never ignore your symptoms. If you think something is wrong, you really should uh, call your physician. And again, go to heartandstroke.ca and learn what the symptoms of a heart attack specifically to women are. And you're absolutely right. I think we all have a story, and I have one just recently. I had a dear friend who suffered a massive heart attack, probably ignored 
her symptoms for quite some time the last few weeks and then suffered a massive heart attack and did not survive. So I think that that message has to get across is that we have to recognize, acknowledge the symptoms in ourselves and do something about it. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry for your loss, Tina. It's very shocking when it happens. Um and um you know the good news is that um people are starting to recognize the symptoms. You know, we've we've had this campaign out for over two years and uh one of the actually shocking factors in addition to, you know, when you hear that someone's passed away is when people learn that Two-thirds of the clinical research into heart disease and stroke is still being conducted primarily on men. And one of the areas that we've focused on at Heart and Stroke is in our women's campaign is that we've mandated that all new research needs to look at um, sex and gender-based analysis and reporting. So how does this research affect both men and women um, from a biological and a gender perspective? And that can include a political, social, uh, economic perspective. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot still that needs to be done, but we are seeing some progress. We're seeing a lot more research into women, um, and, uh, and we're mandating that. So when we ask the public for donations, which, you know, we, we cannot survive without, uh, we want the public to know that uh, it is going to more women-specific research, but it is also um, going to research that just looks at both sex and gender with that, with that lens. And, you know, sometimes we get people saying to us, well, why are you focusing so much on women? It's also a disease that affects men. And, you know, I think my previous statements have already said why it's clearly in need. Um, but we also need to understand that the more we learn about women, we, it also benefits men. How we, if we understand how both, um, both sexes uh, you know, develop the diseases and how they, de- they develop differently, it benefits everybody. Absolutely. If our listeners want more information about the Heart and Stroke Foundation, where can they find it? Heartandstroke.ca. Um, we have a website that's pretty comprehensive, not just on heart disease, but also on stroke. Um, we have symptoms. We have uh, you know, some descriptions of certain diseases. And, of course, we have ways uh, to explain to you what our impact is in our society. Uh, we are the second largest funder of heart disease and stroke research in Canada after the federal government. Um, so we do, we do always appeal that people continue to support us in any way that they can. But, um, not, but I'm not here just to talk about uh, donations. It is Heart Month. I, really learning more about the, the, learning more about heart disease and stroke, um, is, is critical and also learning how to advocate for yourself. Teresa, thank you for joining us on the feed and thank you for your work at the Heart and Stroke Foundation. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Tina. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Well, it may not feel like it on some days, but spring is just around the corner. That means so are the boys of summer. Jim Lang takes us out to the ball game. It's that time of year again, baseball season. Hard to believe, but the home opener for the Blue Jays is just over a month away. The Blue Jays deep into spring training in Dunedin, Florida. A new year, uh, a new outlook, some new twists. To talk more about it, veteran blogger, journalist, writer, broadcaster, Ari Shapiro. You can get him more of him at ariShapiro.ca and his Twitter feed, Ari underscore Shapiro. Ari, how are you, my friend? It's been too long, my friend. I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, good, good. I, I have to say, I, I, I'm always a little worried about the Shapiro-Atkins combination, but uh, they did a few things this offseason. I have to say, I liked it. I am looking forward to see what the Blue Jays are all about this year. 
I'm still processing your your words. Being worried about the Shapiro Atkins combination is something that Blue Jays fans have pretty much been involved with that mentality uh, from day one. Uh, there is there was a, a great deal of cynicism that's collected in this city from what Shapiro Atkins had been doing. But now, of course, it's spring training and we're in a brand new year. And you know what happens, Jim? There's this kind of uh, condition with Blue Jays fans where they're quick to start hoping again. This year, I can tell you, there is a legitimate reason for hope. I can't believe I said that after all the years of being so cynical on your show. But the fact remains that this Blue Jays team, the way that it's been constructed by Shapiro and and managed by Atkins, and now with Charlie Montoya coming back for a second year, has a promise to really overachieve and impress people, not just in the city, but all around baseball. Yeah, I, I like the fact that Montoyo has Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr. a whole season to work with. I mean, the left side of the infield, you're set. Um, the outfield, I have a little bit of question mark. They beefed up the rotation. And like you said, they, 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 it's not like people are expecting 90 wins. They get hover around 80 wins. They've had a great year. And by all stretch and imagination, when you have the kind of year that 2019 represented, to actually have a chance at 500 is, is close to be a baseball miracle. Uh, this is a hard league to play in. It's a hard division to exist in. And yet, the Blue Jays have quietly gone about constructing a team that, if you start with the infield, as you mentioned, is one of the most exciting things for fans to look forward to. This this notion that they can have position players really with their salt, who are young, to some degree kind of like the Maple Leafs nucleus, but with hopefully more consistent results. You've got Bobuchet, you've got Biggio coming back for another year, you've got Vlad Guerrero uh, at third base, uh, Lourdes Guerrero Jr. is someone that they'll obviously decide where they'd like him to end up in the outfield or infield, but right now it's looking like the kind of talent-churning reality for the Blue Jays, which gives them a chance to compete with other teams. And look at their starters. You look at the fact that they went out and picked up the elite Ryu and that they're working on some, you know, banking on some reclamation projects like a, a Chase Anderson or Tanner Rourke. The upside is enormous. Uh, look, you and I, Jim, have known over the years that Shapiro and Atkins like to go out and find, you know, bargain basement uh, bin deals and different garage sale reclamation projects. But this time around, if you look at someone like a Trent Orton or Travis Shaw, uh, the upside, the potential of what this Blue Jays team could do just on paper is admittedly a very, very good thing and really could vault them ahead in terms of what fans were expecting in terms of a regime that can bring a competitive team into the fold. Speaking to Ari Shapiro on the feed from AriShapiro.ca, and I look at Bo Bichette, and I can't help but think of the halcyon days of Kelly Gruber, good-looking kid from the States, long hair, ladies loved him, played hard, fans liked him, put up numbers, a real bulldog in the infield. And I, I think of Bo Bichette, he's got a bit of a rock star quality about him. He stays healthy, he produces, he could be a big sports star in, in the GTA in Canada. Well, and, and it's got all the trappings of uh, unlimited fame for the kid, doesn't it? He's a shortstop, he's uh, a blue chipper through and through. He came on, burst on the scene, uh, demonstrated to the baseball world that he can hold his own. And on top of that, you're talking about the pedigree, you're talking about the connection to the actual pixie dust that exists in the game uh, with his dad. And now you've got this reality where your leadoff hitter is your clubhouse leader, is your brand leader. Uh, expect to see a lot of Bo Bichette Amex-style 
commercials and, and advertising because he is, for all intents and purposes, the face of their franchise now. And that's an amazing reality to discuss when you consider that Vlad Guerrero is, is also on this roster. You know, our, I can't think about the Blue Jays this year without thinking about Rob Manfred and his horrible mishandling of the Houston Nationals cheating scandal because the collateral damage to the Red Sox and the teams around the American League, in my mind, helps benefit the Blue Jays because they've just gone about their business where the Red Sox have had to go through a huge upheaval because of their fallout and their fingerprints on the, the cheating scandal. Yeah, that's uh, an excellent observation because it begs the question for the average Blue Jays fan, what was their team involvement in this recent stretch of horrifically unethical and, you know, uh, amoral, some would say immoral behavior. Uh, the game has been damaged immeasurably by this. And I feel almost as if Toronto escaped and dodged a bullet of sorts. You know, maybe not the most tasteful example, but it feels like it because the truth is there had to have been some association, by all accounts, of people affiliated with the team and around the team. You remember that infamous man in the white shirt yeah. in the outfield? Yeah, that's and right. Whispers, and, and whispers of, uh, you know, our, our hitters benefiting from it. I'm sure if you go back and analyze it statistically, Jim, you'll find that there were some pretty gouty numbers that helped form this reputation that the Sky Dome has of being a, a, a hitter's park. Well, maybe there's more to that than meets the eye. And without going out and making baseless accusations, I can't help but feel that there's a great irony in using that term because all of these accusations are turning out to be fact. And Rob Manfred has done an absolutely piss poor job of providing leadership. Uh, I'm really worried about the state of the game, and I despair over the fact that we're heading into a year that instead of just being all about the promise of teams competing for the World Series trophy, that it has instead been reduced to one where its own commissioner refers to it as just being a piece of metal. Very sad. Uh, are, I, I'm still gobsmacked that he would use a phrase like that for a trophy with steeped in such tradition with some of the greatest names in North American sports attached to it. <laughs> Jimmy, I'm not. No, it's it's sad. It's sad and pathetic to think that we've entered an age of sports cynicism, and that even leaders who carry so much influence can say something like that and turn it into such a PR disaster. I mean, that's all it's been from the start, right? It's been that way because the Houston Astros didn't have leadership either. They had opportunistic, unethical, greedy, narcissistic owners and general managers and, and, and executives associated that this is the same organization that went out and, and picked up uh, a man like Roberto Asuna. So that should really tell you everything you need to know about an organization gone to rot. Unfortunately, Rob Manfred's hesitation and inability to mete out the right kind of punishment, and we know what that is. You strip the Astros of the World Series and you suspend players for at least 50 games who you know were associated with this cheating, with this sports criminality. And he's not willing to do that. He can't do that. The labor's too, the union is too strong, number one. Number two, the fallout would completely disable the sport. So it's, it's very, very sad times for the sport as a whole. But if you're a Blue Jays fan and you think about Nate Pearson and you think about maybe Matt Shoemaker coming back and being healthy and Ryan Baruki hopefully not being seriously felt, that's what you should be talking about if you're a baseball fan in the city, that this Blue Jays team might actually surprise you more than you could ever imagine. And that's that's basically my mindset going into this season. Surprise me, guys. Just go out there. I'm, I'm not expecting 90 wins. You get between 77 and 80 wins, I'll be a very happy guy. Well, and this is the year to do it. The fans are coming back beaten and, and really... Uh, 
smashed to a pulp when it comes to their perception of the game. There has to be a synergy between the Blue Jays brass and all of their ground troops to understand that this is the year that you do everything in your power to reach out to the fans and make them like the game again. Um, like I said, the controversy has really, I think, cast a, a dark cloud over what is to come with baseball. If the Blue Jays, at least from a Toronto perspective, excuse me, a Canada perspective, a true Canadian effort to unite fans, if they can go out and be an exciting young team that hits home runs, and they will, Jim, I mean, they could have eight, 20 home run players at a minimum. There are guys on this team who are going to supply so much air conditioning from all the strikeouts <laughs> in the dome that you will, they will put on a show, but they will pitch better. And hopefully they will have the kind of PR that is nowhere near the fiasco that is Rob Manfred and MLB front office. Because then at least at that point, maybe we can start enjoying baseball again. And there's been so much sadness and sorrow, obviously, with the recent passing of uh, Tony Fernandez. Blue Jays fans deserve a reason to smile and be happy in what will be a very hot and potentially cruel summer. Here, here, Ari Shapiro. You can check him at arishapiro.ca or Ari underscore Shapiro. Not to be confused with Shapiro runs the Blue Jays. Shapiro runs the great baseball journalistic blog in the GTA. Ari, always a pleasure. My pleasure to be on your show, Jim. All the best. Cheers. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region. We're taking a page from the Royals' playbook with Harry and Meghan about to leave the family business. Joining us on the feed to talk about family business succession planning for commoners, like all of us, is Philip Lieberman, partner and portfolio manager K.J. Harrison. Welcome to the feed. Let's talk about how you unfold a business if it's a family business and uh someone wants to move on how do you do it without big problems so and you know before i answer that let me just give you um a quick minute of background as an owner partner and portfolio manager at kj harrison we manage you know just under two billion dollars of capital for private families across the country and 70% plus of our clients are owner-operator, entrepreneurs, the people that own the businesses, mid-market, small market in Canada. And at the end of the day, they look for succession plans. And succession plans for family-owned businesses really come in, in three forms. You either sell to someone else in the family, ultimately, as your successor, one or more family members, or you end up selling to management if you have an outside management group outside the family. And the third option is a, an outright sale, whether it's to a strategic buyer or to a private equity firm. We're going to talk about the, the first option today, which is really just about how you go about orchestrating and navigating selling the business to family successors. And I would think that one of your strategies would be to start the conversation as early as possible. I think that's absolutely critical to, to start as early as possible. And the reason is, and you, you, you alluded to Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle and, and the, the royal kerfuffle that's been um, well, well um, read in the newspapers and, and over the radio and TV over the last couple of months. And that's a prime example, albeit on a, on a grand scale, it's the royal family, but it's a prime example of why it's so critical to start early. Because at the end of the day, 
there's one overriding factor in nailing a good succession plan for a family business. And it really comes down to, as it does in so much in life, communication. And the earlier that an owner-operator starts to communicate in as transparent a fashion as possible about his, his or her succession plans, the better. Philip, how important is it that all family members are in on the discussion? Well, that, that too is, is, is sort of part and parcel of a good communication strategy and starting early. A lot of times in our experience, we find that the owner-operator, you know, almost sometimes assumes that there's a particular family member or maybe a couple of family members that they're the successors, they're the chosen ones. And frankly, sometimes you go down the road and you find out that they're not. You've made assumptions along the way that are incorrect. And a large part of it, Anne, is because that owner who is busy both building and running their successful business hasn't really paid enough attention early enough in the process to, okay, who in the family might this be a great opportunity for? Not only for themselves, but who has the right skill sets? And the earlier that you start, the more you're able to mentor and assess family members and, and frankly, you know, speak to them about what, where do their interests lie? Do, you know, do they see themselves in the family business or do they have outside interests that they'd like to pursue? You know, there's an expression, you can choose your friends or you can't choose your family. How do you keep personal and business affairs separate? And, and how do you make sure that there are no tears and no slandering going on and, and threats and that sort of thing? It can be very heated, this, this type of transaction. It absolutely can. And, you know, there's another great analogy out there. You mentioned the royal family, and that's one that's very, um, very out in the public view these days. But for those that are, um, you know, big TV buffs and, and watching all of these series on Netflix and all the other streaming services, there's a great show called Succession, which is on HBO. And again, I'd suggest that it too is a bit of a grand example because it's about a billionaire media empire. You know, I'm sure everyone can think of the families out there in Australia and, and otherwise that it may be modeled after. But be that as it may, you're quite right. It's very, very difficult to separate the emotional, the personal aspects from the business aspects. But that's why transparency and early communication is so critical to navigating family succession within a family the business within a family, because the only way that you can properly work with your family members, be it immediate family, cousins, uncles, aunts, etc., is to bring them into the tent early, be very transparent about what the process is, what the skill sets of the leader needs to be in the next generation, because, of course, it's all about value. It's all about preserving all the value you created in the company thus far and for that successor to carry on and continue to build value. So you need to work with your family by sharing as much as you can early on to allow them to both tell you whether they're interested and then demonstrate their interest through their skill sets. It seems to me that not only are you a financial wizard, you are a bit of a psychiatrist or, or psychologist having to deal with people on a business level, but also on a personal level. 
Well, again, getting back to the core business at KJ Harrison, we, we really are dealing with these families both before a succession issue in their business and then after. So we really see our job as helping business owner clients transition from wealth creation, the building of their business over time, to wealth preservation. I mean, our core business is the wealth preservation part. They've monetized the business, and now we're helping them invest their capital over the course of their lifetime and for their legacies and their heirs and their philanthropic um, you know, objectives, etc. But at the end of the day, what, what really sets us apart as psychiatrists, quote-unquote, is you know, at the firm, we come from a whole very set of backgrounds, law, finance, accounting, tax, merchant banking, mergers and acquisitions. And Warren Buffett, sure, and you've heard of Warren, one of the most famous investors in the world and the uh, CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, the public company, he has a very famous quote. You're a better investor for being a businessman, and you're a better businessman for being an investor. And if you think about that, that psychologist role is one that we can really sort of help our clients navigate the difficult issues of family succession because we understand all the factors that go into both building a business, sustaining a business, and ultimately passing it on to the next generation. You know, I... I Stop and think about the perhaps senior member of the business, or maybe it's a couple. And what if no one in the family wants to assume the role or follow in their footsteps? That's got to be difficult, both financially and emotionally. You know, at the end of the day, it is. But back to your question about separating personal from business, you know, as a business owner, you're right. It can be very difficult if ultimately you look at the opportunity set within your family and either because none of them either want the job, want the opportunity to take the business from the founder to the next level and continue it within the family, then you need to be able with, again, a core group of advisors that can help you sort of stick handle your way through this roadmap of, is there family members that both want it and have the aptitude to do it, the commitment? And as you know, like there's stakeholders, you know, the, 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 the potential successors in the family, are they able to work with current employees? Are they able to work with outside stakeholders of the business? And if you ultimately figure out or, and conclude that they're not, they don't want it, or they don't have the skill sets, or both, then you have to make that hard decision, which... You can't fight the emotion, but you have to make that hard decision that you're going on to options two and three, which I'd love to come and talk to you about because there's a lot to talk about in that area these days in the Canadian marketplace, which is you need to either look at if you happen to have external management that might be interested in buying the business, or you need to go down the roadmap of a third-party sale, either to a strategic investor, buyer, or to a private equity buyer. But that's a, you know, that's a discussion for another day. 
You know, time is of the essence when it comes to anything we do in life. And you did mention that you believe that the conversation should begin early in business. It is said that five years is the time frame for which a business is either going to thrive or not survive. What do you think about five years in terms of of having that discussion? I mean, to some, it would seem like a long time. To others, it's not enough time. So what, I, what I'd say is, again, the earlier the better. I'd say a minimum of two years. I agree with you that five years plus, it is hard to see you know, too far down the road. So even when people usually work on financial forecasts, budgeting, they'll do a year or two and they'll do a sort of greater five-year you know, forecast. But you know, five years is a pretty good time horizon to start thinking about things. So I think that you should be within that five years working on mapping out and road mapping your various options within the family and what happens if it's not within the family. Sometimes it's more apparent that it will be. Sometimes it's less apparent. So you better be preparing in that five years for those, you know, for options two and three. But I think it's really important to start early. And, and it goes to, there's a lot of planning and not to get into the minutiae, but, you know, whether it's tax, um, there's, there's planning to set up the owner to monetize their business properly from a tax perspective, a corporate structuring perspective, getting appropriate valuations on your business from outside third parties, arranging your third party group of advisors, which is critical, getting the right sort of team of third party advisors to help you overall manage the process. So it takes time. Within the word succession is the word success. How do you ensure a successful family business succession planning transition? Well, you're, you're right. Um, it, it's, it's within the word succession, but it's, it's hard to absolutely ensure. But what you can do is plan for the best outcome. And this is all about taking the time up front to step away from the busyness of running your business day to day and and growing it day to day, which you know arguably occupies just a ton of an owner operator entrepreneur's time, and being able to step back early and say, okay, five year plan that keeps rolling because if it doesn't happen within the first five years, you've got to roll it to you know year six to ten. So it's sort of a rolling continuum, and success is ultimately. You know, did I, did I achieve within the family the goals that I was hoping to achieve? And again, you know, five years so that you can look at family members, assess their skill sets, help mentor them, help make sure that they've got the commitments that you believe need to be had in order to continue this profitable business and, and frankly take it to the next level of growth for future generations of your family. That's what will mark success. And is the family still speaking to one another when all is said and done? It has been an absolute pleasure. We have so much more to explore with you, and that will happen in the future on the feed. Just before we say goodbye, where could people go uh, to get more information about K.J. Harrison and about you, Phil Lieberman, Philip? <laughs> no problem. Um, so, so the best place to go is, um, as you said at the beginning, I'm a partner and portfolio manager at KJ Harrison. We have a website, as most firms do these days. It's kjharrison.com, so K-J-H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N.com. Lots of information about the firm generally there. Under the team, you'll find me. 
and it's easy to email me. My, my email address and telephone number are there, and I'd welcome anyone that has questions generally about the process. Philip Lieberman, thank you so much for giving us your time on the feed, and we will talk again. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. listening to the feed on 105.9 The Region. Our music coordinator, Christina Lavecchia, now with new music from local artist Daniel Monte from the album Familiar. I will be long, I promise. I will be strong so again I can. I can hold your hand. We have Daniel Monte and his band here with us in studio. Thanks for having us. us. Thank you. So did you want to introduce your bandmates? Okay, well, we got Jordan Mason as uh, the drummer. We got Flavio Silva as the uh, synth player. We got uh, Mateus uh, Caldas is actually going to be, he's filling in today for uh, our guitarist Antonio. And we also got Jack Caraman on the bass. I understand you all started playing not too long ago, the end of 2017. Yeah, Around it's been there? a couple of years almost. It was just the four, like uh, me, Jack, Jordan, and Antonio, and then last year we got Flav. I basically had the album done before meeting these guys, yeah. and I was like, okay, now I, I gotta play this album. <laughs> I gotta play the album. I gotta do it. So I'm like, we gotta, I gotta get a band together. And so I, so I, you know, so little by little by meeting these guys at school from high school, whatever. I called everybody and we got it together. You performed for us here at the studio, and it was a great elaborate performance and a lot going on which is good daniel you're playing violin and doing the keyboard and yeah, all that at one yeah. time which is really great it's maestro it's a really musty performance so to do that you can head on over to york24-7.com so be sure to check that out your sound doesn't seem your traditional pop rock sound there's a lot of like classical undertones i've, I've been trained classically for over 10 years on the violin and piano right so that's just like in in me at this point those classical elements so a lot of my a lot of the songs basically almost all of them um, have some sort of orchestral element to it, whether it's percussion, whether it's strings. So that is like something that definitely shows through the songs. And um, I honestly, we're always confused when people ask, okay, what genre are you? Yeah, that's the thing. next question. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's one of those things that's very confusing because like we're kind of a mishmash, mishmash yeah, of like, like everything. Like, have you guys like come up with a we term? Essentially, just orchestral, orchestral yeah. pop rock. Sometimes yeah. orchestral yeah. pop rock. Yeah, we combine like yeah. contemporary music with classic music and orchestral music so just to give listeners the chance to get to know you a little bit better i'm going to ask you a few questions but to make it fair i'm going to have you pick your own question from this um, oh picking all right so who wants to go first uh jordan he's the icebreaker who would play you in a movie about your life? Why? Oh, oh I know this. Chris Pratt. I know what you're going to say. Chris Pratt. Matt Damon. Yeah. Matt Damon. The amount of I think it's Chris Pratt. You know what? I, I can see the resemblance. Chris Pratt. People say yeah. that. No, don't, 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 don't inflate his head like that. No, no. <laughs> because. No, I could see it. Yeah. I mean, maybe not so much now, but when I was a little younger, uh, I would get comments all the time. I don't think you can go wrong with either of those. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah, good. Okay. All right. Loves. Who is your favorite person in the world and why? Probably going to have to say my parents because they. I mean, they've always been there for me, and mostly my mom, I'd say. I'm doing music because of her. Does she have a musical background as well, or? No, she doesn't. No, but she always kind of pushed me that way, so. 
Aww. Love, love is a mystery. We're, we all learn things. You guys every are day. getting to know each other. All right, let's see here. What do we got for Mateus here. Oh my God. What is one thing you wish you were better at? Ooh. Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> you mean you're good at everything? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a musician, you're always trying to get better, right? So it's it's uh, it's great to play with other really good musicians, and I'm really happy to be subbing in for uh, Antonio, who is actually working at uh, not working, studying at Berkeley, and. I mean, I'm definitely getting better just by playing music with these guys. So, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Wish for more wishes. You know what? I would love to have met John Lennon. I don't know. I just I love the way he went about his business and the music he created was just you know unapologetic and and so real. So I would meet John Lennon three times. That's such a Jack response for sure. Um, Daniel, question for you. I know yes. you're from York Region, right? Is yep. anybody else here from York Region at all? Yeah, uh, me too. Okay. So do you guys have a favorite memory growing up in the region at all? Rosani's in the, you know, is in, in there. One of the best memories from high school I had was Battle of the Bands. That's a funny story because Jack is, was actually in, uh, in an, an opposing band of mine. Oh. We played in separate bands and we were competing basically. And then Antonio was in the other one. Yeah. He was in another band. So we were all in the same Hoping out the competition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were all in the same Battle of the Bands that year, and that yeah. was always fun. That was a good time. It was that was very fun. student-oriented, so we were very involved with organizing it. Not the Last Goodbye is your newest single. Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Actually, this one's probably one of my favorite songs that I've uh, that I've done. I was in a long-distance relationship for a bit, and um, that distance was like, you know, it's kind of, if anybody's been in a long-distance relationship, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not fun. So I was thinking of it as an exaggerated point of view of, let's say it's a soldier who was out to war, right? And there's a long-distance relationship there, right? So the, the essence is the same, but, but it's the added factor of he, he doesn't know when he's going to come back. Uh, you don't know if you know, you're ever going to see them again, right? You know, the, the soldier writing a letter to his wife back home, making a promise that he will come back and it won't be the last time they say goodbye, right? So it's not the last goodbye. And, um, you know, it never fully resolves. It resolves with her actually reading the letter, but you never actually know the outcome of the situation. So you're kind of left in that state with them in, um, in the sense of that ambiguity of whether or not, you know, things will end up, whether or not they will be together. And you end, you end up left with kind of a, like a deeper sadness, not just the sadness of, oh, we broke up and now, you know, oh, I'm sad. But it's like more of a deeper, a deeper feel to it. So, um. But yeah, that's what that one's about. You have the newest single. What else can listeners and fans expect from you guys? There's a lot of a lot of yeah. things happening now. They could check out your website. DanielMontemusic.com is the website. You can find us on Instagram. We use that a, a ton. And it's at Daniel Monte Music. M-O-N-T-E. Um, and then there's also the Facebook, same, same, t- same um, Daniel Monte Music. We'd like to possibly go on tour. Absolutely, yeah. In the summer. Thanks for coming by, guys. Well, it was great to have you. Thank you. that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, please head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.